We are back in Mark chapter 11 today. Mark chapter 11, and we'll be at the end of the chapter, but we'll be setting the context for us in a few minutes just as we refresh ourselves where we've been. It's been four weeks since the last time, or rather this is really the fifth week since the last time we were in uh, the book of Mark, and so we're looking to jump back into that. And I love technology, but right now it is just not working for me. There we go. It's coming back. Or maybe not. What's going on? Okay. Yeah, we have all made uh, choices in life that have led to negative consequences. Well, at least, at least I know I have. Maybe, maybe you're out there batting a thousand on life choices, and everything's just going swimmingly for you in every area. Well, that's not the case for me, right? I, I've made choices. It's, it's led to, to negative consequences. Things have happened. Uh, there's a road that you, you walk down, and if you continue walking down that road, it leads to negative things. It leads to negative consequences. Bad things happen, but and sometimes there can be even a situation where maybe we're being warned against the, the danger that is involved with that road, the path that we're going down. We're warned, hey, if you continue along this pathway, this is the end of that. You really should turn away from that. And yet, in our stubbornness, perhaps in our pride or whatever reason we might think, or we just think maybe it's just worth it, we just continue to press on and keep going down that road. And so there's, there's a phrase that comes from this. I can remember hearing it from my, my dad several times. You know, you're cruising for a bruising there, pal. All right? you're, if you just keep going and you just keep walking that path, it, it is going to lead for, to trouble for you. You better shape up. You're on a pathway that will only lead to hardship. You're headed for trouble. You're inviting misfortune. It is better to abandon the pathway. And yet sometimes, despite the warning, despite the, the clear instruction, hey, like, I, you may think you're having fun, you may think that this is what you want to do, but I'm just telling you right now, if you keep doing that, it's going to be a problem. And yet, that warning is so often unheeded, just keep marching down the path that only leads to our own destruction, cruising for bruising, and that bruising is about to hit. From time to time... Uh, my boys like to try to pick fights with me, play fights, you know, I'm the kind of thing, you, you grab a towel, you're trying to snap, you know, trying to do the whole towel snapping thing. Well, it's all fun and games until, I, okay, are you trying to snap me with a towel? Well, what if I pick up a towel and start snapping back? The game changes all of a sudden very quickly in that moment. What was once, a, uh, oh yeah, let's, let's have some fun with this, like, oh no, 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 let's not do that, running away. And I keep telling them, guys, you're picking a fight, you can't win. You can't win this fight. Yeah, you might think it's fun, but I'm telling you right now, you can try to carry on, but hey, don't come crying to me when you lose. That's, that's all that I ask, right? Well, in our passage today, the religious leaders, they are headed down a path that ultimately will lead to their own destruction. They, they, they're picking a fight with Jesus, and it's a fight that they cannot possibly hope to win. They're going to confront Jesus over his actions in the temple, and in the weeks to come, we're going to find the hostilities will only mount and grow between Jesus and the religious leaders. There's a, a battle of wits that is going to be engaged, and the tensions will only grow and grow to the breaking points. 
Next week, we'll see chapter 12 is going to begin with a parable that's going to speak severe judgments on these religious leaders. And it is our passage today that really sets the backdrop for that parable. Why was it that Jesus issued that denunciation of the Pharisees? Well, this is what sets the table. Why is such wrath reserved for them? The answer is in Mark 11, 27 through 33. Let's go ahead and read that passage today. Mark chapter 11, verses 27 through 33. And they came again to Jerusalem, and He was walking in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the elders, they came to Him and they said to Him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, Well, if we say from heaven, he will say, Well, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? And they were afraid of the people, for they had all held that John really was a prophet. And they, so they answered to Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you what authority I do these things. Before we get too deeply into this exchange between these two parties, several details worth noting. And I, I just first again want to remind us of the context for, for how did we get to this point. Jesus has been on a journey to Jerusalem and all along the way he's been teaching his disciples about what is awaiting for them when he comes to Jerusalem. He, the, the key things that he's been emphasizing for them is that he must suffer and die and then he always is teaching them about what it means to follow Jesus, what discipleship looks like, what does it mean to, to take up your cross and follow Jesus. Jesus is teaching them that it is the way of humble service and submission, not self-aggrandizement, not seeking to promote self, but self-sacrifice. And as He approaches Jerusalem at the end of chapter 10, we find the famous words, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Chapter 11 opens with that grand triumphal entry. Jesus riding into Jerusalem on the donkey, the people crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna to the Son of David. He enters into Jerusalem, He comes into the temple, surveys the scene, retires for the night. The next day we had that incident of Him cursing the fig tree before He goes into the temple. He drives out all the money changers, He flips over tables, causes a scene, drives everyone out of the temple because the people were making a mockery of worship of Almighty God. Upon leaving the temple, the disciples notice that the tree is withered, and they're amazed at that, and Jesus teaches them about faith, about forgiveness, something the religious leaders sadly know nothing about. And that is where we left things just before we took our Christmas break. 
So now as we come into this passage, now, now here all these things have just happened, these things have just unfolded. Jesus has just made, made a mess of all the temple from, from one perspective, cleaned it from one perspective, made a mess of things from another. And so it is with that backdrop that these religious leaders approach our Lord. And as we come into this passage, notice verse 27 begins with these words, They came again to Jerusalem. Mark is is continually emphasizing where these things are taking place. He's reminding us that this is where Jesus said all the things that He has predicted, all the, the death, the suffering, all those things, this is that location. This is it. We're coming to the end of Jesus's life. Notice who approaches him. There's three groups mentioned there. First is the chief priests. These would have been the ruling priests. They, they control everything for ritual worship. They were in, in charge of, of aspects of, of the sacrifice and all the things going on in the temple. Then you had the scribes. These were the experts in the law. If there was a dispute about the law, if there was a question about about how we should understand the the law of Moses, these were the guys to come to. They were the foremost authority on the meaning of the law. And then we have the elders. The elders, these were the lay leaders within the community, well-respected. They they carried that air of of dignity and gravitas when they they would speak. People would listen for the wisdom that would just come from their lips. And altogether, these three groups would form the Sanhedrin, the ruling body, those who governed the people in all things pertaining to the law of Moses and worship of Yahweh. This triplet of individuals, these chief priests, these scribes, and these elders, this, this grouping together, it is another signal for us that the end really is drawing near for our Lord. The last time these three groups were all mentioned in the book of Mark, it, 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 takes, it takes us back to chapter 8, the first time that, that Jesus predicted His death in Mark chapter 8, verse 31. It says, He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders the chief priests, and the scribes, and to be killed, and after three days rise again. And here they are. They all approach Jesus, and they're only setting themselves up for divine retribution. The outline that I have provided for us today is a rather grim one, if you see in your worship guide today. There's the outline that you can fill out there. How to place yourself under divine judgment is really what these religious leaders were doing as, as, as Jesus is going to have that parable for them in chapter 12. Well, this is the backdrop of, this is, this is the steps that, that carried them forward in this pathway. How, how to place yourself under divine judgment? Do, do you want God's judgment? Do you want His wrath? Well, this is the blueprint that is guaranteed to get you there. A step-by-step guide for maximal suffering when the books are opened and you must give an account before Almighty God. 
really what we're going to see from the Pharisees is really nothing new in terms of, of how the Pharisees, how these religious leaders, how they've interacted with Jesus previously in the book of Mark. But, but this passage really serves to, to encapsulate in just such a succinct and, and concentrated form the hypocrisy and the issues of the religious leaders as they came before Jesus Christ. So how? If you wanted to place yourself under divine judgment, how would you go about doing that? Step one. Reject the authority of Christ. Reject the authority of Christ. Look again at verse 28. Verse 28 reads, They came to Him, they said to Him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or, or who gave you the authority to do them? They are responding, of course, to Jesus' startling actions in the temple of Him driving out the money changers, driving out the, the people who are doing business, casting all of them out. And they're responding to that, okay, well, who, who gave you this authority? How, what makes you think that you can do this? We have a farmer's market in town, usually meets down at Big Four Station down there at the Walking Bridge, but in the winter months... The, it doesn't meet down there, it actually meets in a church in downtown Louisville. And I'm just picturing in my mind's eye, you have all these vendors, they're all set up with all their booths and all their tables. Well, they're meeting in a, in a place of worship inside of a church building. Well, can you imagine the feeling that would come about if, if, a, if a local area pastor or religious leader, what if they were to go into that building and start flipping over the tables and trying to cast everybody, this is not appropriate for you to be having a farmer's market in a church building. That would evoke a response from people, would it not? Like, what are you doing? Like, what, what makes you think you can do this? Who puts you in charge that you have this authority to do this? Who do you think you are? I think it's a natural question that we would ask if such actions were to unfold. And it's like, yeah, that's, it, we would ask it with, with genuine confusion and alarm because this is not normal. Like, this is not how things should be. It, but here in this text, the religious leaders, I don't think they're asking this question just from pure shock and alarm. Like, like what in the world is Jesus doing here? They're asking this because they know exactly who Jesus is, and they know exactly what He is doing. Jesus' actions are not just, just the actions of just some crazed religious zealot just, just flying off the handle. These are the actions of the King who has come to cleanse the temple and to lead the people in repentance. Everything that Jesus has done since He has come to Jerusalem Everything leads us to see the, the messianic undertones of His actions, the, the, the triumphal entry of riding on the donkey, Hosanna to the Son of David, Him cursing the fig tree, and then His actions within the temple. All of that is, is laced with these messianic undertones that would have been unmistakable to the religious leaders. They, they knew exactly what Jesus was claiming to be. 
Furthermore, if we could even just go back earlier to Jesus' ministry, this whole theme of, of authority and, and who gives Jesus authority, by what authority He does anything, that has been a, a major theme of the book of Mark, especially early on when Jesus is establishing His ministry. The people are amazed at His authority. He teaches as one with authority. He casts out demons with authority. The people are amazed at all of these things. He forgives sins with divine authority. He viewed the Sabbath how He viewed the Sabbath was with authority, how He commanded creation itself as He calmed the stormy seas and He walked upon the water. All of this demonstrates the authority of Jesus Christ. And the response of the people has always been amazement. Just They've been amazed at, at the authority and the power of Christ. So I think of the words of the apostles as they see Jesus calming the stormy seas. What manner of man is this? that He can do these things. Jesus is a man who has divine authority. So the question really is truly not by what authority. The question really is, will you submit to that authority? Because really, the accusation that is latent within the question from these religious leaders to Jesus Christ is, it really does demonstrate that they do not accept the authority of Christ. I mean, remember who these guys were, right? These are the chief priests. I mean, they're the ones who are in charge of the temple. They're the priests. They're the ones who offer the sacrifices. They're the ones that control all of it. They are likely the ones who would have been the ones to orchestrate and allow for all this money-changing stuff to happen in the temple in the first place. And so now when Jesus comes along and He's casting all of that out, their response is, is not, oh, you know, oh, we're just so confused by this. It's, oh, you are claiming authority here. Who do you think you are? Who died and left you in charge? It is not a polite question, oh, excuse me, sir, I'm sorry to bother you, but, but whose orders are you acting under here? No. There's a response of rejection and skepticism. Who died and made you king? Where did you get this authority? Because we know we certainly did not give it to you. So inherent within this question is a challenge to Jesus' rightful authority as the Messiah, and it is clear that they reject His claim to authority. Furthermore, because of how we know that the religious leaders operate, we must not ignore the reality that inherent within this question may have been a trap as well for Jesus. Jesus' actions would have been a clear signal for those who had knowledge of the Scriptures, for those who understood what the Messiah was to do, for those who understood how kings operate. It would have been very clear for them to understand Jesus' actions and interpret it in a way that, yes, He is claiming to be Messiah. He is claiming to be the Messianic and Davidic King. But Jesus Himself has not yet come out and publicly declared, I am the Messiah, I am the Davidic King, you may now crown me and put me on the throne. He has not done that. He has not yet claimed those titles and roles publicly. 
The leaders knew that Jesus was invoking this messianic and kingship feelings in the people, and it may very well be that asking Jesus this question, they're trying to draw this out of Him so that they could accuse Him before the Roman officials who would have missed the significance of Jesus' actions. So they knew that his actions communicate what, what his actions communicated about who he claimed to be. But if they could just get him to say it out loud, then it would be curtains for him. They, 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 they would have him. But they reject his authority. So do you want to receive the, the judgment of God? Well, this is this is the first step. You reject his authority over your life. Don't, don't repent of your sins. Don't believe the gospel that he, of, of grace that is freely offered to you. Don't take up your cross and follow Christ. Don't bow in humble submission to Him. Don't, don't regard Him and, and view Him as the Messiah and King. Don't accept His teachings, His ways, His example, or His word. You reject the authority of Christ, and you will get what you seek. What flows from this rejection, well, it all naturally, logically flows. If, if you reject the authority of Christ, then, then what follows is what logically and naturally flows. You will have no concern for truth, but you will only do what is most beneficial for you in the moment, and that is what the religious leaders do as they begin to elaborate. They forsake truth for situational expediency. They forsake truth for situational expediency. The religious leaders, they ask their question, but notice how Jesus responds. He, he doesn't answer directly, and, and we must understand that this is not uh, Jesus just evading the question, just, just dodging and seeking to, you know, try to get out of things. This, this whole question and counter-question, that was a very common way that, that dialogue took place and disputes about the law were settled. They would, they would ask questions and there would be counter-questions that would help clarify and help bring more clarity to things. And so that was a very common way of doing dialogue with the religious leaders of that time. So Jesus isn't evading the question altogether. He is engaging in this common form of discourse. But the question that Jesus asks, it exposes their hypocrisy and demonstrates that they never had pure motives in asking this question in the first place. Verse 29, I will ask you one question. You answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from heaven or from man? Was John operating with, with divine authority himself? Was, was John a true prophet from God operating as a, as a mouthpiece for the Lord? Is, is his baptism that he was, was engaging in, was that a divine activity or is it just, just another mere human just doing whatever he thinks is right in his own head and just, okay, if he wants to go out in the wilderness and eat locusts and honey and all that stuff, okay, that's fine, but there's no real substance to it. There's nothing divine about it. Which way? Which, which is it? The question is, is brilliant on the part of Christ, and Mark's explanation for the reasoning as, as the religious leaders try to think through this, it really does expose 
and reveal the brilliance of Jesus' question. Look at verse 31. It says, they discussed it with one another. Well, you know, if we say from heaven, well, then he will say, well, then why did you not believe him? So they start wrestling with this, start thinking about, okay, how do we wrestle through this? If, if we say from heaven, He'll ask us why we didn't believe. Here's the trouble for them. Well, first we have to understand and remember, who is John the Baptist? Who was that guy? Who is John the Baptist? Well, that, that takes us back to, to Mark chapter 1, where we see this, this declaration of the, the preparation of the ministry of Christ. Mark chapter 1, verse 2, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make His paths straight. John was the forerunner of the Messiah. John was the one who was to prepare the hearts of the people to receive the Christ, to receive the Messiah. Remember, there hadn't been a true prophet in Israel for 400 years before John came onto the scene. And there he was. And what was his message? John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And what was his testimony about Christ? Mark 1.7, he preached saying, After me comes, one, comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The testimony of John the Baptist was that Jesus was the Christ, that Jesus was the Messiah, that Jesus was the long-awaited one that they had been anticipating and looking forward to for so long. And so as these religious leaders are debating amongst themselves and trying to reason out, hmm, how should we answer Jesus with this question, when Jesus says, Okay, you're asking me about the source of my authority. Well, what do you say about John the Baptist? This leads them to do what, what all good politicians do, right? They try to figure out the safest way out of the question, the safest way that will cause them the least damage to their administration or their campaign. How can I retain my position? Because here's the thing, if they say that John was from heaven, they do expose themselves to be both hypocrites and liars. Hypocrites because they did not follow John. They, they did not like John. Other Gospels report that, that John called the, these same religious leaders a brood of vipers. They didn't like this guy. There's no love lost between them. So to say he was from heaven, that certainly would have caused the people to scoff, like, oh, Really? Now you're going to say he's from heaven, are you? You who did not have a friendly relationship with John the Baptist, you had this adversarial relationship, and now after he's dead and gone, you want to try to claim that he's from, that his ministry, that he actually was a prophet from God? Okay, whatever you say. But what's more, if they say from heaven, then they have to accept Jesus as the Messiah. And they have to accept Jesus and His authority because John explicitly identified Jesus as being that divine Messiah. 
They could not accept John and denounce Jesus. It's a package deal. So they deliberate. How should we respond? How should we think about this? They forsake truth for situational expediency. How can we think through this question? They cannot answer the question honestly. They cannot speak freely because of their own sin and their own pride, their own desire to protect their own position. They care more about their status than they care about the truth. I like this quote from Mark Strauss in his commentary. Their hypocrisy is evident in that their deliberations are motivated not by what is true about John, but by potential backlash from Jesus or the crowds. It's a very dangerous game to play. A very dangerous game to to play these kinds of political games, these kinds of situational expediency, whatever is helpful for me in the moment. Sadly, this is a game that I have have seen played uh, even within churches that I've been a part of over the years. There have been times where in, in dysfunctional churches, there's different people. Everybody's got their own agenda. Everyone has what they believe they need to see accomplished. Everyone has their own angle on things. And when trying to get answers to questions, when trying to understand why decisions are being made the way they're made, there's not a straight answer given. There's, there's not actual communication that's being going on there. There's always some kind of deflection, some kind of misdirection at play, and these things ought not to be so. Jesus at multiple points warns, warns His followers about desiring to be the greatest and having, having the best place. We, we've seen that as we've gone through the last several chapters. The disciples talking about which of them is the greatest. No. Paul writes that, he writes against seeking your own agenda, but rather to pursue the interests of others. These are warnings and these are this instruction that is ignored by these religious leaders. They hear Jesus ask this question and their hypocrisy is exposed. And as we will see, they will be denounced by Jesus and handed over to judgment for it. Do you want to receive the judgment of God? Well, then do not pursue truth and honesty. Don't honestly evaluate truth claims. Don't think about what is right, but just think about what protects you and your position and your influence in the moment. Don't you view your position as a, as a means to serve others, but rather to be served by others. Don't allow the facts to get in the way of your personal agenda and desires. Follow those steps and you will get what you seek. Well, there's more to their deliberation. I just looked at the first half of it. They're, this next portion exposes their, their fear of man. Again, this is, this is a natural progression, a natural extension of rejection of Christ's authority. If, if you reject Christ's authority, then certainly there, there, you have no grounding in truth. You don't have to evaluate things honestly. You can just try to do whatever is ex- expedient for the moments. And this 
last portion reveals their motivation for their situational expediency. It's because they fear man rather than fearing the Lord God. They fear man rather than God. Verse 32, they say, oh, but if we, shall we say from man? Then we have Mark's comment that they were afraid of the people, and they all held that John really was a prophet. Now, my preferred translation of this text is, is actually from either the LSB or the CSB, both of which would read something along these lines where it says, but if we say from men, then it cuts off. They were afraid of the crowd, for everyone was regarding John to have been prophet. Mark, Mark provides the reasoning for the leaders about why, how they're deliberating and why they're thinking this way, how, why they're trying to be politically expedient for the moment. And he provides the reasoning with a pair of conditional sentences. The first is, if we say from heaven, then he will ask why we didn't believe. Right? There's the if, there's the then. The second conditional is, if we say from men, but then Mark doesn't provide the then portion of the condition. He just kind of leaves it hanging, and you can just feel the weight of the implication. I can almost picture if this was almost like a, like a, like a movie scene, you could feel the dramatic flair. Well, if we say from men, then the dramatic music, dun, dun, dun. There's a weight to the implication of those words. The then portion of the conditional framework doesn't need to be completed. As Mark provides the reasoning, they were afraid of the crowd. See, they believed John was a prophet. They thought they, they had finally, after 400 years, a prophet was in Israel. God's silence has been broken. And so, if they were to say that John was merely acting out of his own volition, if, if he was just acting according to whatever popped into his head to speak... That means the age of silence continues on. That 400 years is now extended beyond several more years. They certainly would have lost the confidence and the loyalty of the crowds. And so, of course, this does tie in with, with that last point of, of situational expediency. They, they, they are acting in self-preservation. They act for situational expediency because they are more fearful of the people than they are of the Lord. They care more about their position than they care about truth. They have an image to maintain. They can't go against popular opinion and keep their so valued position all at the same time. So they decide to just play it safe and say, well, I don't know. I shrug my shoulders. We don't know who, which of course was a lie. But again, they're more concerned about their power and their influence than they are about truth. More concerned about what the people thought about them than they were about what was true and what they actually believed. And so it's because of that Jesus refuses to play their game. Verse 33. And so Jesus answered, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. If you cannot answer honestly without trying to play these political games, you don't deserve an answer. 
And again, it's not like Jesus was just leaving them in the dark. They're just like, oh man, I just, I, we'll, we'll never know by what authority he does these things. How will we ever know? No, it's not that Jesus was leaving them in that way, but Jesus is rather exposing their hypocrisy, exposes their games. He refused to answer the question that they already know the answer to. They know by what authority Jesus is there in Jerusalem, and they are in rejection of that authority. So Jesus does not give them the answer that they, on a surface level at least, appear to seek. Fear of man. Fear of man is a significant issue, I believe, for, for each and every one of us. I, I know, at least for me personally, I am prone to this particular temptation. At heart, I am a people pleaser. I, I want people to like me. I, I, I want them to listen to me. I want them to feel good about having been around me. And that on its own may not necessarily seem so bad, but it leads to very miserable places very quickly. It can lead to compromising truth compromising ethics for the sake of trying to please whoever it is that we're trying to please. And so I personally, I have to work hard to put this tendency and this proclivity to death within myself. I have to regularly remind myself, it doesn't matter what people think of you. It doesn't matter. What matters is truth. What matters is what's right. What matters is what the Word of God says. I don't want to be the kind of leader that looks like this oh, yeah, how am I going to answer this question? What's, what's going to keep me safe? I don't want to have to be that way. I don't want to be the one to hedge every statement weighing the p- political risk of answering rather than just speaking the truth in love. I'm grateful for many mentors I've had over the years who have modeled a humility and a willingness to, a willingness to be challenged and to, and to respond with honesty and integrity, and, and I hope and pray that I can follow after Uh, that pattern, that example that has been laid down for me. But the Jewish leaders here, the Jewish leaders here, they feared man more than they feared God. And as a result, they just sought to protect themselves, protect, protect their own positions, seeking to answer whatever was politically expedient for them because ultimately they rejected Jesus Christ and His authority. And as a result they will face God's judgment. So again, how, how, how to place yourself under God's judgment? You want to be judged by God? Well, then seek the favor of man above all else. Don't do anything that would cause anyone to dislike you. Don't be willing to honestly evaluate if you're wrong, if, if, if that means losing face in, in front of others. No, don't do that. Fear man rather than God, and you will get what you And just to foreshadow for us again the passages that are to come, Jesus is going to give a parable that ends with judgment on these leaders because they failed to fear God, because they refused to evaluate honestly, because they ultimately rejected the authority of Christ, they will receive what they justly deserve. Friends, the obvious solution to this to these errors is simply to do the opposite of what these leaders were doing. 
Rather than reject the authority of Christ, no, we should believe and receive Christ. Rather than forsake truth for situational and political expediency, you know, we need to be willing to evaluate and answer honestly. Rather than fear man, we should fear God. For the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, as we're reminded in the book of Proverbs. And this all begins with the gospel of Christ, right? This, this all begins. It's through faith in the gospel that we are freed from the tyranny of self, feared from the tyranny of needing the approval of man. And if we come humbly before our great God and Savior and in embrace of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we do not have to live in the fear of condemnation from God. We don't have to fear the wrath of God. As Romans says, that well-worn text, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. This is, does not have to be something that, that we fear, does not have to be something that we are worried about. But nevertheless, in our own sinfulness, it can still be easy to slip back into these, these patterns. And our life can reflect the leadership of the Pharisees more than the leadership of Christ. And so I just challenge us all this morning as we reflect upon the example that is given for us, a very negative example in the life of the Pharisees as they reject the authority of Christ, as they, they act with whatever is just expedient for the moment and not in the pursuit of truth, as they act with fear of man rather than fear of God. I, I just challenge us to consider, the, the, to make a commitment to truth every day. Seek the fear of the Lord over the fear of man. Remind yourself regularly of the freedom that you have in Christ and such that you are no longer a slave to sin. That does not have to be the path that we walk down. You no longer need the approval of man to give you a sense of fulfillment or a sense of purpose in this life if you are serving Christ. Very practical way is to, to observe these commitments and these, these approaches is just to begin every day with that submission to Christ. You wake up in the morning before you grab your phone and start the endless scroll that so often begins our days. Spend a moment seeking the Lord in prayer. Lord, may I submit to you and to your will today. Help me to honor you in this day, this day. Help me to live for you. Help me to fear you over fearing man. Help me to live in such a way that I live for truth and not for the fear of man. As Romans says, present yourselves as a living sacrifice before the Lord. The religious leaders, they were in rejection of Christ. May we pursue lives of submission and following. May the Lord build this within us. Lord, I thank you so much for this text. Lord, this is in many ways a heavy passage of Scripture, Lord, that leads into more heavy passage of Scripture as we move in through the, the chapters of, of chapters 12 and 13. Lord, there's so much weight here. I thank you that through the gospel of Christ, the, the reason why Jesus was in Jerusalem that day was so that he could 
continue his journey and, and finish the pathway that would lead him to the cross. And it is through that cross, through faith in the gospel of Christ, that we receive your mercy and your grace, and we can confidently say that there is no condemnation for us. We do not have to face the judgment of God, though we are so often so prone to wander, so prone to rejecting your authority, so prone to seek the approval of man rather than the fear of God. It is through the gospel and through your grace that we are confident that we will not receive your condemnation. But Lord, I do pray that you would strengthen our resolve to live for you. I pray that we would come before you in humble submission. I pray that we would begin our days every day with this prayer. Lord, I give myself into your hands this day. May I submit to Christ and to his commands. May I honor you with my life. Lord, build that within us. Build these habits within us. May we be a people who submit to you and your authority. I pray all of this in the name of Christ.